Welcome back to Let's Be Legendary The Fair Wild West. This is the retrospective for season four. Yay! Say hi, everybody. Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> that joke never gets old. It does, never. actually. It gets, well, it gets no. really nope, old really wrong. fast. No, nope. I'm, I'm, I'm always right. You are in. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, who are we? Start. Who are you? Hi, I'm Molly. I'm the dungeon master for Fay Wild West. I am Meg D. Sass Council. I play Selene Argent Gray in the Fay Wild West. I am Chris Sass Council. I play Talia Argent Gray. Well, this is uh, finally coming out now. Um, yeah, sorry about the delay. Um, we actually, so fun fact, we actually recorded this already. Mm-hmm. And realized that an audio issue that we had been having was not just a one-off. It was a pervasive problem. Whereas before, we thought it had been fixed. And we uh, were incorrect. We were incorrect. It had gotten worse. And mm-hmm. there was literally no usable audio. Like, unless you like demon static coming out of your yeah, ears. Yeah, unless Yeah, you our patrons will hear a little bit of that in a couple bonus round episodes. Yeah, as, yeah. But, so unless you like the idea of, like, knives being drilled into your ears, it's best that we just re-record this. We did fix the audio issue, finally. Like, yeah. for real this time. Yeah, we actually did fix it. And we actually found a better way of recording in our new setup, which, thank goodness. Unfortunately, the Fey Wild West will not really get to benefit from our our new audio setup because we actually finished recording on the old audio setup, which for reference is a tiny Yeti mic. That Yeti mic has done so much for it us. Has. It really has. We really yeah. should be thankful to the tiny little Yeti mic. The, the tiny little Yeti mic will retire in comfort and, you know, we'll be on a pedestal of the thing that got us through the <laughs> wild west. Maybe one day when we're, like, when this this show finally takes off, we'll, like, auction it off for charity or something. Oh, yeah. 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 $5 mm-hmm. will definitely yep. go to the your local animal shelter. Anyway, so, yeah, we had a bunch of problems with, with trying to record it and then when we decided to re-record it ran into a whole host of other problems that just you know a series of unfortunate events basically mm-hmm. took over all of our lives and now we're finally getting a chance to sit down <laughs> first it was first it was illness then it was another illness then it was midterms and that is also why Jess is not here with us today is because she just got boosted and she's not feeling great so. yeah that's okay. We will carry on. Yep. So uh, we are here to talk about season four. What do you guys think of season four? I think that season three was a learning experience for us. And I think we took the lessons that we learned from recording and producing season three and applied them pretty well to season four. Yeah. Season four was a learning ex- experience in and of itself. And I think... Oh, as H. Bomber guy said, making art is jumping off a cliff and building your wings on the way down. And we're still building <laughs> our wings, and they were they're they're almost done. They're they're getting there. Yeah. They, we've gotten some lift out of them, a pretty good amount of lift out of them actually. But we are still learning how to do this, and we probably will be learning how to do this until the show is over. Quite honestly, so it was season four was a different kind of learning experience, but. I think it turned out pretty good. Overall, yeah. I think it turned out pretty well. Definitely already applying some of the lessons we learned in season four as we're 
prepping season five for release. Yes. Oh yes. Lots. Which we of... will we will talk about a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, season four was definitely because we looking at season three, we had a really good momentum going as far as like season one and two. Like season one, if you go back and listen to it, definitely has its slow parts. Because we were still kind of learning how we had just jumped off the cliff and had no wings at all. Yeah, it was a it was a process of figuring out what to add in, what to have, like what what to focus on in the story and what was relevant to the story. So you have parts of it that are like really engaging, and then parts of it of a shopping, which is just like okay. So season two, on the other hand, had this like. The narrative really drove it. Like, we didn't really have that problem in season two. Season Season two just came together. It was just lightning in a bottle. Yeah, season two was just a woo, you know, Mm -hmm. like, we didn't really need to do much to season two. Um, It just kind of went. Season three kind of stopped us in our tracks where everything felt like it was stuttering. And we kind of talked about that. We talked about that in the retro for, for season three already. But... We didn't want that to happen with season four, and we knew there were parts of season four we we were going to need to iron out, so to speak, which we'll get into. So a lot of the stuff that we came away with was season three. We were, like, bound and determined it's not going to happen again, and it really shows in season four. Mm -hmm. I think the big lesson we learned with season three is that it's okay to re-record big parts of the story or at least substantial chunks of the story if they don't make sense for the narrative as a whole. And the thing that I always go back to is the part in season three with Jareth dying. If I were to write a novelized version of the Feywild West, which I will not do because I'm not a writer, but if I were to have one written, I would rewrite that part entirely. And if I could Mm -hmm. go back, I would have said, hey, we need to reconceptualize this. Yeah. Which I'm kind of glad that actually happened because... In the grand scheme of the narrative, it's a pretty small part. And we realized, oh, we should have taken that out and done something different. Mm -hmm. And so we took that lesson with a very small part of the story and took it forward into season four, which had a lot more that needed help. It wasn't just one event. It was really big parts of the narrative, which we will get into. And a large part of that is something we've discussed in previous retrospectives is that when we were recording this initially especially in what became the first couple of seasons, we had no idea what the fuck we were doing. And it was a D&D game we were turning into a podcast. Not a podcast that we were using D&D to create. Yeah. Which is what it's more become and what we are making it more of, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. That makes sense to me. It's like, we're we're not the traditional you know, podcasts that do D&D. I mean, there are a few of them that are kind of doing the same thing we're doing, but for the most part, like, people just play the game. Mm -hmm. And That's kind of what we were doing at the beginning, where we were just kind of going off of what other people had done because we didn't know what we were doing. So we were just kind of copying other people's formulas to see, to to find our own, which is honestly a great way to figure out what you want to do. It's copy what other people are doing and then make it your own. Yeah. And I think from there we decided, you know, we don't need to stay hard and fast to the narratives that we've already made at the table 
because we can do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like all three of us are great storytellers. Adding Jess in. It made it even better. It made it even better. All four of us are storytellers. Yeah. And all four of us can do way better than some of the things that we've done at the table, which at the time the, at the table, it's very like. Like it might have seemed funny at the time or it. Yeah. Just like, ah, oh, let's just get past this. Yeah. Like, the thing that happens when you're at the D&D table, especially when it comes to our game, is, like, keep in mind, a majority of the Fey Wild West was being recorded in the wee, 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 wee hours of the morning. We're talking, like, 9 o'clock p.m. to 6 a.m. Because those were the hours we were all working on. We, yeah. were, we were all third shift. We were all third shift, so... Those were the times that we were playing this game. And kind of the problem with that was that none of us are really, like, built to be on third shift for too long. So not only that, but the pandemic happened. So you've got, like, tempers flaring in some places, not involved in the game, just in life in Mm -hmm. general. And so all of us were, like, in this, like, you have moments where you will have, let's just get past this part, or just, this seemed funny because I needed some mirth. Yeah. But listening back on it, you're like, this was not funny. (laughs) And I think, honestly, that's fine, because I've looked at, the way I've, I've talked about this before, but the way that I look at the raw recordings that we did at the table, it's a first draft. Yeah. Yeah. And there are times in a first draft where you're just like, I just, just need to get past this part. Yeah. And then in revisions, which is our post-production process, you revise and make it better and polish it. So I think that's totally fine. And we've all had moments where we've listened to the raw recording and gone, oh, why did I do that? Oh, my God, that was so dumb. Why did I do yeah. that? We're going to change that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris just identified one that happened in season five, like two oh, days gosh. ago. Oh, gosh, yeah. They're... <laughs> Talia, like, attacked an NPC. Which we thought was very which funny. Which I thought was very funny. And not even, like, a, a rival NPC or, like, an evil NPC. This was a friend, like, a family friend. And she literally just, like, reached up. He, you know, he was just like, oh, I, I don't have my ear pierced. And she's like, you don't? I thought you did. And then she just reaches up and, like, pierces his ear with her her fucking fingernails. This is not going into the next season. I guarantee you fucking that. Because, like, yeah. I don't know why I thought that was funny. I don't know why I thought at that moment, like, Talia would do that. Because there's no fucking way she would have done that. That was Chris having a brain fart. But at the table, everybody, we all laughed. All of us thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Celine even backed it up. She's just like, see, you are pissed. You know? Yeah. It was... And the NPC even, like, was just like, ow, dude. You know, yeah. like, that sort of reaction, which is just like, this was assault. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it's moments like that that we have to, like, that we can go, yeah, no. Um, and we've done that a lot. So Especially in season four. So let's get into it. Yeah. yeah. Narratively, after the end of season three, we had a lot of housekeeping to do mm-hmm. from a character standpoint. We knew what was going to happen in season four, obviously, but we had to tie up some loose ends on the character level. And this is the kind of the first big edit we made because we had had that first part of season four before we even get into district three taking up like 12 episodes. Oh, God. Right. And it was just like uh, this is one place that Jess was helping us with post-production and she was like this is a fucking slog i hate this we're gonna be into the the season launched in october we're gonna be into january and you still haven't gotten to district three so we're like all right 
we're going to smush some episodes together and we're going to cut some things out and make it a little more streamlined. And even so, we still do spend a good chunk of time staying in District 1 and cleaning up kind of the mess that was left after the end of Season 3. Yeah, on a on a production level behind the scenes, um, that was hard to do. My processes for cutting up episodes is the rough edit ones, which is the raw files, will be like I'll listen to the raws or I was just kind of like skimming through the raws and finding the parts where I thought would be a good ending to an episode. And I'd usually keep them around like an hour, hour and a half. Um, and, the, and those would like break down to smaller episodes, like to smaller sizes because just we cut stuff out. And I was in a really big rush when I was doing season four. So I don't listen to most of them before I do that. I just like kind of break it up and listen for the parts that I'm looking for based on what I remember. At least you used to do I used to do that. That was a huge mistake. And I realized that as we were doing season four, I was just like, I don't think I listened to these correctly. Mm. And I didn't. Then having to go in and smush a bunch of episodes together, it really messed with us for a little while. We got confused about a lot of things. I got confused with a lot of things as far as, like, which episodes were where. And it was kind of a big mess for, the like, the a good first half. But this is a good example of where Jess's feedback has become invaluable. Because we all have bias of having been there. Yeah. And having our perspective warped by our experience at the table, whereas Jess is coming in fresh and can be like, this is, this needs help. <laughs> yeah. And like, and the their, their feet, their yeah. feet and their feedback we will talk about was super invaluable in this season, especially. Yeah. So season, the beginning of season four initially was just like a ton of shopping. I remember it was it, lots of like telling people, fl- uh, too much slice of life. Yeah, it was a little, and I know that, and I know like a lot of people have expressed to us that the slice of life stuff is really, it, it's very meaningful to them, and they really like it. And I and I agree, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I agree because that's part of the storytelling process. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, this was less slice of life and more cake of life. Yeah, this was we gave you a pie and no one wanted it. Like, not even us. We were just like, this is way too much. And at the table, all of that seems relevant. All of that seems, well, obviously, we need to, like, explain what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We need to go each place to explain what we have. And normally in a and d game, you do need to do that because you need to account Mm -hmm. for all the stuff you're doing. And you need to account for all the equipment you have. In a story setting like this, no one fucking needs to know. But yeah. I, no one cares. But this, as I've said before, this is a medium of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And a lot didn't stick. Yeah. So we took it off the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or we took it off the floor because it didn't stick to the wall. Anyway. The ceiling. It went to the ceiling. Cool. Like spaghetti. Oh, yeah. That's how you know it's done. I know from <laughs> Celine's point of view, she had some emotional shit to deal with and I mean it's Celine she always has emotional shit to deal with but she had she had some emotional things to confront especially coming off of season three that's what I mean she had some emotional some emotional things to confront after coming off from the end of season three so one of the things that didn't stick to the wall was that we had a a minor thing that we had to drop with Raven oh yeah yeah Raven kind of (laughs) metagamed Slightly. And we had to drop that. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit here because <laughs> this was during the party scene. This was during the party where Talia brings everyone together and because she doesn't want to have to explain what happened and why they were gone for two months to everybody individually. So big party and also mm-hmm. so she has an excuse to, you know, have a big party. Big party and here's what happened. And I remember I had been talking to you, Molly, kind of explaining where Celine's head was. And I, I have kind of a bird's eye view of where Celine is feeling. And so I understand her emotions way better than, than she does. Mm-hmm. And a lot of kind of what she thinks of as the flashpoint for everything in her life going bad is Raven. Mm-hmm. Because when they got to Crankshaft, Raven was the one that told them about the broker. And that's when she feels like her life started getting really, really difficult. And so there's a part of her that blames Raven for all of this. Right, And yeah. it's not a conscious part. But there is a wall that she's put up between herself and Raven, which is why, well, one of the reasons that she's not as close to Raven as Talia is. This wall that she doesn't even realize that she's put up because you're the problem. You're, you were the one. You're, you're the cause of all this in some way. It's not rational. But it makes sense in her emotional subconscious. Mm -hmm. And so in the original recording, and this was kind of the first big thing that we changed, you had Raven apologize. Yes. And again, I'm going to put you on the spot. I feel like that was a little metagamey. You put me on the spot, but like, I'm going to be honest. I don't remember my thought process at all behind it. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Like, it might it might have had something to do with the the fact that both of us emote a lot when we're acting, and you it, had it, and there was a point in time you had a really big like I don't want to make them sad, yeah, kind of attitude, not realizing that we're acting, <laughs> yeah, or not not, well, not consciously, but like your brain was interpreting. It's like oh, I need to, I need to make things sad. I need I need to make things I need to make my players happy. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas you like uh, eventually you realize that oh if their if their characters are miserable they're probably ecstatic about it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah. No, and part of it was that not realizing the like the separation, but another part of it was definitely just some baggage on my end with just like needing to have people happy. And so that was definitely part of it on my end. Not just Raven, but throughout the... Yeah. So that's probably what led into it. Uh, I also thought... I th- well, Okay. I think I thought that it would be interesting to have Raven remember. Turns out it wasn't really all that interesting. No. <laughs> I do I mean, like... It was, it was interesting because... Sorry. It was... It was interesting because it did lead to something later. It did lead to something later, yes. I do like what we did with it, though. I think that we preserved kind of the spirit of the scene, which is Selene is overwhelmed and needs to remove herself. Yes. And that is that she has kind of like a PTSD flashback to like looking at all these people around her and remembering being at the wedding and like it all comes rushing back and she gets emotionally overwhelmed and she's like, I can't be here. Mm -hmm. And I think that works way better and it, it was a good change and I think it's a good a really a kind of symbolic symbolic endemic like it's all contained in, in the same like a good it's a good example it's thank you <laughs> <laughs> I got you it's a good I think it's a good example of how it's okay to take out a chunk of plot that we thought 
worked at the table but doesn't work in the recording, doesn't work in the story. Mm -hmm. And adapting it and making something better that works just as well and makes for a better story. Yeah. Thankfully, we've mo- all of us have pretty much been on board with whatever changes need to be made. Like if one of us suggests, hey, we should probably change this. Everybody's gone like, yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I sometimes put up a fight. I sometimes. But I, I, I usually agree. But I'm also like, but I liked that part. That part was funny. I know. But, but like, was it really funny? Work. Is it funny, Megzy? <laughs> or did you just have fun doing it? I'm like, it was funny. <laughs> well, so far, I'll say most of us have most of the, the major changes we've made everybody's kind of been like yeah that was probably a good idea i will i will 100% admit to being the problem child that wants to have all of the cool moments that i thought were very cool and were definitely not <laughs> <laughs> well who knows we've got multiple other seasons yeah we got four more four more to go four down four to go Woo-hoo. possibly five possibly yeah. five possibly we'll, five we'll with the way that season 5 is turning out we'll but, see how it shakes out but speaking of uh, celine's emotional bullshit Whereas in season three and season two, and kind of season one, she had been trying to deny her face side and trying to be something that she wasn't. This is the season where she kind of realizes, I this is who I am, this is what I am, and I need to accept it and embrace it and try to love it about myself. And she starts trying to kind of own her fey heritage in her own way by taking some more ownership of her realm, the one she got for killing Lord Longfellow. Yeah. And the first thing she does is redecorate and changes it from the shadow realm, which is all gray and and green and gross, to the realm of pale shadows, which is very pretty and purple and lavender. Okay, lavender. Lavender and silver and white. Which is much more her, and the reason she names it the Realm of Pale Shadows is because, again, in trying to embrace this part of herself, she names her realm after how she sees herself. Because earlier she was looking in the mirror, and one thing that's really messing her up mentally, like, I mean, everything messes her up mentally, but one (laughs) thing that's specifically messing her up mentally about having to watch... The broker, this person that she's had very complex feelings about since she laid eyes on him, get married to someone who it looks exactly like her and is kind of a better version of her in at some level of her emotions. Certainly a more powerful version. More powerful, more fey, more everything that she didn't think she wanted to be and doesn't know if she wants to be. Lots of... It's a mess. And at one point she looks in the mirror and she says... I. I am a pale shadow compared to her dark vibrance. And that's why she names the realm the realm of pale shadows, because she's naming it after herself and trying to embody it. And I think I did a good job with that. Yeah. I think you did a really good job. I was really excited. Oh, like, y- you, Molly, you're the yeah. one who created the Fae Wild West. How excited were you when this one started being like, I want to be an actual Fae I'm going to be now. a Fae oh, now. Yeah. No, it, it was everything I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, for the Fey Wild West, uh, the Fey Wild is obviously a large part of it. And whatever group I planned, whatever group was playing in this world, I planned to have at least somebody have a connection to the Fey Wild. In the beta game, there was a sorcerer that was uh, uh, Fey uh, connected to the Fey Wild, and then we moved it over here, and 
with Celine. I think I surprised you with the Faye connection, if I remember. Uh, no, no, I had, well, so, yes and no. Because one of the reasons I think that we kind of were so attracted to playing this game in the first place was because we, Chris and I had the idea of repurposing these old OCs that we had because mm-hmm. we don't make new OCs. We just rehash the old ones. And it's a problem. It's a, it's, you know, it's great. <laughs> it's great. In the original story that these characters were in, Celine was part fairy. Right. And that was kind of like, I was like, yeah, we should like, we were, we were kind of kicking it back and forth. You actually were the one that said, Hey, you should play Celine. Yeah. And then it, it kind of it snowballed from there of like, oh yeah, she's part moon fae or part even fae was what she was. Right. In the, yeah. In the original story. But you surprised everybody with the connection went way deeper than just she's part fae. Right. I, yeah. I had kind of like put, given you that idea. Like I'd 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 I'd, I'd put that idea in your head and then I was like, I I'd like to see if, I I can't wait to see if she's gonna do anything with it. And you oh, did. I did. You spiked it back <laughs> over the net. But yeah, having you actually, because you had gotten the realm and hadn't really done anything with it, but then you actually started investing in it, and I was like, yes. <laughs> I think it, <laughs> I don't have to try to railroad you into go into your realm, please. <laughs> I was really excited too. I think like I, I think less because you know face stuff, and more because it shows that there's growth on Celine's part. Mm-hmm. And in a game or in any story, you know, one of the best things you can do for a character is to have them, A, make lots of mistakes. And Celine has made quite a few mistakes. And that I will freely admit that she has made tons of mistakes. And sometimes intentionally on my part, because I think it makes for a more interesting character. And then the second thing is to grow from them. And this kind of shows her growing from not just mistakes but like previously held beliefs and just growing as a person it's and like, maturing a little bit and maturing because a little bit she's because been this in- is responsibility this is a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. and she's been up until now a, a fairly immature person part of that is just because she's kind of has an, an immature personality and also just because she's young and i feel like this was the point where she was like kind of realizing i have to grow up a little bit not in the way of like I have to grow up and start taking things seriously and put away fun stuff, but I need to take start taking things seriously and start being responsible and being an adult in yeah. a, in a, in a good way, I think. I think so. And it's it's ca- it's it's gradual because you can want you can follow the through line, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um because I know a lot of stories just like somebody especially when it comes to like D&D stuff and it's nobody's fault. That's just kind of the, how the game goes sometimes, which is where you just decide your character is going to start growing. It's like my character, I've decided that it's, my character is no longer a murder hobo and I'm going to go do it. It's more because I did kind of make that decision with Celine of like, okay, now she has to grow up. But it was not like, okay, now she has grown. Right. <laughs> yeah. Over, like she's been no, through this, tra- can, this emotional trauma and now she is grown up. Yeah, but you can see the 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 steps that get taken. You can see you know, her thought process. You can follow all of this with her. Like, you go with her on this journey. It is very much the same character that progresses rather than different characters just with the same skin. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So I was really excited that. was that. that. That was my intent with her is that she's been through this emotional trauma and now she has to start 
she, she, has, she realizes that she can't keep doing what she was doing, and one of the things she was doing was being extremely avoidant. And she has an avoidant personality that probably will not change, but... Boy, howdy does she. <laughs> but... She kind of went the opposite way this time. Instead of running more from her face side after this Fae-related emotional trauma, she went towards it. My, uh, not spoiling too terribly much, but I love it. Like, her, her avoidant personality does not get better. It's still there. Mm-hmm. It gets it get, it, 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 it changes. Just turns over to something different, it which is very funny. It changes. It morphs. It morphs. Yes. Well, but so that, that shows also, I think, that she doesn't have to change entirely who she is as a person. She just needs to... Oh, no. She's still got all her same flaws. Oh, They've yeah. just moved oh, yeah. over slightly. Oh, yeah. But, you know, if you're going to talk about Pale Shadows, we have to talk about the most important part. The bunnies. Yeah. The bunnies. And, and I... Molly's, like, obnoxious detail to whimsy. <laughs> like, But I... I okay. Uh, on the subject of bunnies... This is a really good example of throwing everything at the wall and everything stuck because none of this was planned. It was just like, Selena's going to go under her realm. Is her bunny still there? Yeah. And he has a name and he's been surviving this time. And so it was just like back and forth and it just all lined up perfectly. And this was throwing stuff at the wall and everything stuck. The thing with the bunnies. <laughs> the thing with the bunnies. It started out with Reginald. I swear yes. to God, Mo- I don't know where Molly got half the stuff she came up with when it came to just the absolute ball busting whimsy oh that like just, is all over the place when it comes to not only just what the bunnies do but what the residents do mm-hmm. of pale shadows it's just like like the spider all of those people like it, it's so interesting to listen in and just like the shit that she comes up with like the teacups was that in the season yeah 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 because, the tea- because um a certain someone was lurking around the border and Celine wanted to wanted to uh, move. <laughs> yeah, and then Reginald had to explain by the teacup with the teacups and there was just more teacups and I'm like, how did you come all up different, with that shit? All different sizes. All different sizes of teacups just yeah. all there. And it was very it was so funny. Like yeah. I I Talia does not know what to do with half of this whimsy. Chris loves it. it Chris is obsessed with the little whimsy touches. It's so thematically consistent with how you've built up the Feywild because it's the idea of this stuff has always been until it's not. And so even with something as small as the microcosm of the teacups that <laughs> Reginald was sh- using to sh- to illustrate to Celine how the realms work, the teacups were just there. They've always been there. There were always that many teacups until there weren't anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Which no. makes perfect sense to Celine as someone who's part fey, but it drives Talia up the oh, wall because Talia she's just, just like... too, like, Talia is way too ingrained in the material plane to, like, grasp some of this stuff and it's very funny it, yeah. it, it makes for some very good contrast yeah as far as where i get the stuff it's a little bit of alice in wonderland a little bit of uh the fairy from jonathan strange and mr norrell and the spiders specifically when i imagine the spiders i think of the old uh Hobbit, the old Hobbit movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the old, the old like Hobbit the movie. Rankin Bass Rankin ones? Bass the Rankin Bass one. The Rankin yeah. Bass one. Yeah, that that's that's what I think of when I think of those spiders. Is uh, with human teeth. With human teeth and eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still gross, but love it. Yeah, and just throwing off details and the Feywild is a very just. It is a realm that is completely comprised of magic, which is why iron is such a toxic substance to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, iron, 
grounds out magic. So by uh, just anything being able to exist there and beings that are from there of the same stuff, they just reach out for whatever they need and it's there. It's thematically consistent. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. That is the beginning of Celine's embrace of her face side and her realm. And, and I can't wait to see where she goes. I can't wait to see how this turns out. Yeah, exactly. After we get through that, we actually start heading south. Finally! Finally! A couple Finally. of things happen while we're heading south, which are fun. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so another thing um, that we threw at the wall and then like realized holy shit no like we thought it was so funny we at the thought table. it was hilarious at the table and then like having a like somewhat of a brain cell between all three of us thinking back on it going oh no really? let's let's, ba- let's back up a little bit because the premise for this is that the three of us knew that within the story we wanted Celine to get pregnant yeah. So we were thinking, how are we going to do that? And this led to our brilliant decision at the table. And this is another, this was the next big plot element that got changed. And do you, do you want to say originally how, how uh, Talia got the sex change post in, inside her? So originally, Celine drugged the coffee she was drinking. Oh my god! Even just hearing you say that, I'm like, why did I think that was funny? Why did any of us uh, think that was funny? I think it's because it was definitely something we could see Celine doing, like as a gag. <laughs> <laughs> like we could def- like if if anybody like anybody who knows Celine or has been listening to this podcast from the first episode definitely goes that definitely sounds like something Celine should do. Okay. I'll, however. I'll, all right. All right. However, in context. It's one of those things where it's like, do you really want your main character to drug her wife? No. 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 Yeah. So we kind of, uh, I think we actually came to that conclusion fairly like like swiftly afterwards. Uh, yeah, it was it it wasn't it might not have been like immediately afterwards. I don't think it was. I think it was when we were kind of looking down the road yeah. to what we were going to have to change in season 4 and we were like that needs to change. Yeah, that was a big like uh we got guys we fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, again, it turned out so much better because it's so much funnier if it is. And it's still within Celine's character to be like, oh yes, we're going to play this little game, and, <laughs> and and of course you're not stupid enough to just go along with what I say because you know me. To which Talia is that stupid, <laughs> <laughs> but it goes to Talia's character of like, yeah, okay, I'll play along. Yeah, sure, I'll play. No, it's it's funny because it's like. What well, it speaks to? No, I'm not going to play your game and just tell me what you want. Uh-huh. And then her impatience at times when it comes to like Celine's like tricks, not knowing that Celine like actually like puts something in her coffee, so she just downs it. And I think that that is way funnier in the long run, especially because Celine didn't expect her to do that. Yeah. You were you were expecting an intellectual match of minds, and I said no. <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> so yeah, that was one of the major things we changed. It turned out so well in the recording, though. Like when we re- when we redid it, it was we were all giggling. It was really funny. The other thing we changed, the other big thing we changed about that scene, we really changed everything about it. Was that 
the next morning, originally, oh, the yeah. kids were at the table, like, looking awkward right. at the two of us, and... Just, we don't need... Uh, we don't need that. It's so much funnier to have all the animals judging Talia. Yeah. <laughs> like, all the, like all five animals, including the the fairy familiar... Yeah, just of, staring at her. Like, as she walks like, into the barn. We know like, what you did. Yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing is, she has nothing to be ashamed of. And yet the the animals are still like, like we still know staring at her, and like, they're probably just looking at her because it's like, oh, there's Talia, she's gonna feed us. Yeah. yeah. Well, Muerte was definitely judging. Oh her, well, yeah. Well, but... Muerte knows her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just it it turned out so much better than it, it was originally. Like even listening to the original audio, we did not have as much fun as we did re-recording it. Right. Like, oh yeah. It was it was so much fun re-recording it, and we were just all giggling, and we were like, it was a lot of fun mm-hmm. to do the re-recording. Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. of the major things that got changed. But on that subject, Celine's pregnant, which we find out later. But yes, as of as of as of that fateful day, Celine is pregnant or night all day, all night, all day and all night. Yep. Another plot element that came up close after this, as you were continuing to head south. Uh, was something we didn't have to re-record, thankfully. Um, yeah, we didn't re-record that. That turned out great the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evolution of Death's Whisper into Grave Silence. I think yeah, talk was, a little bit about that. I think it was something I had talked to you, like, uh, off mic. A li- yeah. A little bit, where Talia was concerned about Death's Whisper. Like, I think I had spoken to you. It's like, yeah, I gotta find a way for Talia to, like, reboot him or something. Because I think he's, like, he's not running on enough RAM. Or, like, I was comparing him to a computer. Yeah. But, like... He, he is he is one last bit of code at, that's still managing to run in the script that's a brand new program. Yeah. And, yeah. and I know that's kind <laughs> he of is how... the last He is the last line of GrimReaper.exe that's yeah. somehow running in undertaker.exe yeah and i think that's how you had described him yep. to me it, anyway it is and that was one of the ways i i, I appreciate that because it's like oh i get it okay and i was and and talia who doesn't think on those levels but she was very much like something is like off with her gun and since it seems like she's gonna stick with this gun for a while there had to be something that could be done because it didn't seem like it didn't seem like Grave Silence was all there all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, not fully. Like, he was, like, distant or something like that. So she was... Cons- I had mentioned saying to you off mic that I gotta ha- find a way for Talia to, like, fix him of some way because I don't think she- I don't think he's doing well or something mm-hmm. along those lines. And as we got into... And I had... It was just, like, an offhand comment. It's like, hey, could you ask your dad this? Well, come with me. And then that it became that. I'm yeah. just like, no, 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 wait. You know, I'm not, I'm not ready. And then Molly went, <laughs> nope, we're going above and beyond. It's like, all right, we're getting this scene, and it was, um, it was a really cool scene. It was, a, it's a really cool idea. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to we'll talk really quick about grave silence and death whisper and all that fun stuff. Well, yeah. So death whisper was a magical item that I developed uh, for the, specifically for the setting. Uh, it's a leftover piece of the Grim Reaper after the God War and the Sundering that's been kicking around the material plane, taking the form of whatever weapon the uh, wielder is most comfortable with, trying to 
fulfill its mission, uh, continuing to try to fulfill its mission. It's had several wielders over the centuries. As we know, its last wielder was John Zinn. Mm-hmm. Bringing it to, Ta- to Talia and having Talia with that responsibility of, I mean, it was also just a fun thing of her nickname being the Reaper. Mm-hmm giving her that responsibility of the this gun this piece of a god has a list has a duty that it needs to perform mm-hmm. and in season three she she only had one name left but asked if it could be extended yeah and she formed like an actual partnership with, yeah with dust whisperer uh, but at one and the same time he he was not doing well he, he was not doing well he is incomplete mm-hmm. like and so bringing him to the current god of death, the Undertaker, I felt that it required a substantial transformation of the weapon. So it went from the Grim Reaper's scythe to the Undertaker's shovel. And, like, we talk about characters coming into their identity in this season. And as cool as a scythe is, like, it's a it's a pretty cool image. It And even though Talia's nickname is the Reaper... The scythe never really fit quite as well as we kind of had thought it would at the beginning. Tally is an edgy character. Yep. A scythe just puts it too over the top. It puts it puts her into like uh, my OC don't steal. I mean, anime. she's already kind of my OC don't steal. But I know, this is but like, like I I ho- I hope she has some level of like nuance that goes beyond edgy like yes she's edgy i fully admit that she was based off of two like her the major inspirations are both edgy fucking characters but she's got a a very large emotional side Mm -hmm. that i think gives her a little bit more i hope anyway who knows i i i just i feel that her emotions just make her beyond edgy you know if i can sound a little bit conceited about my character for five seconds I I personally think while I do like the fact that she is just an edge lord to the max, mm-hmm. she's also an extremely emotional and empathetic individual. So mm-hmm. I think that gives her a little bit more of a nuance <laughs> to just my OC don't steal. Yeah, and um, the scythe never quite fit. It never really. I wanted it to. Uh-huh. I kind of wanted. We it all to. did because holy shit, who doesn't love a character with a big fucking scythe? I mean, but. The thing is, is that that, as cool as that image is, it's been done. Yeah, it has. However, the shovel. The shovel. Holy shit. If you're going into a gunfight with a gunslinger that brings a shovel, (laughs) you're in trouble. And, like, A-plus aesthetic of, you know, a long coat gunslinger with a shovel slung over, you know, on... Uh, you know, holding a shovel over her shoulder and just like, you know, glowing eyes. Like, holy shit. Just what? like. <laughs> just mwah. Just yes, mwah. Art, yes. I am coming for you and I have brought my own shovel. She is yeah. a full service gunslinger. Yep. She will <laughs> shoot you and bury you. Yep. Not only will she put you in the ground, she'll actually put you in the ground. <laughs> Speaking and, and you know, so A plus aesthetic with that, like the shovel worked so much better. Another another good thing that we threw everything in the wall and it all stuck. Yeah, and I was so excited because like that kind of became Talia's identity mm-hmm. throughout the rest of the series. 
that the look of hip cocked standing, you know, legs apart, hip hip cocked with the shovel over her shoulder is kind of this like iconic look for her mm-hmm. um, going forward in the series. It's one of my favorite like looks of hers. I'll draw it one day. Yeah, one day I'll, well, I'll actually get art of it. But it was, it just like that shovel kind of became like a really big iconic thing for her. And emotionally, it let her know that her instincts were right. Something was wrong with him. Like this wasn't just some artifact. Yeah. This artifact had a had like had a, feelings. A, had feelings. Had essence. She was emotion. She was worried about the mental health of her gun, <laughs> and she was only right. only Talia only would Talia do this. would be worried about this. <laughs> and she was right. Something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she was able to help him and to get him quote unquote not necessarily fixed, but like helped it. Yeah. It it kind of like strengthened their bond. I think and. It was for a player to have that kind of bond rewarded. It it meant a lot to me personally to be able to be like through all the shit that went down with this gun and all the shit that they went through, something really good came out of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and at the end of the day, she was able to help someone, which was something that she really strives for. I don't know. it, It meant something a lot to me. That scene, obviously, not only was it you know, focus on my character. It meant a lot to me personally because like it, it's that reward of you stick with something long enough and then here's your here's the reward for it. And set up so, and pay off. Set up and pay off. Yeah. So it it was I love that scene. It's obviously. it's really good. I I like it. I mean, there. I like it for all of the reasons you mentioned. Yeah. I it's it's very it's it's so good. But then also the the nerd in me um, loves that it's called Grave Silence because in Sailor Moon, <laughs> right? Sa- yeah, Sailor Saturn, who is the senshi of death and rebirth, has the Silence Glaive, and so I'm like, he. It's which, also a Capricorn. Also a Capricorn, which obviously you didn't intend, Molly, because no. you haven't seen that season. But I, I, it was it was a nice little a little like Easter egg just for me <laughs> that I put that I I, I connected. I think it's nice. I think it's cool. Like it 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 was a really cool scene. It was a really a really good, you know, like we said, setup and payoff. It meant a lot to me as a player. And it has ripple effects mm-hmm. um throughout the story, which is like an A plus for me. It's also kind of foreshadowing what's gonna happen later in the season as far as our involvement with the gods. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. In a in a subtle way. In a if you're looking for it, it's there kind of way. Um, I do like at the end of that scene where like Celine was just like, any other good advice? And he's just like, bring a board. Yeah. <laughs> bring a plank of wood to see to bring a plank of wood to district three. And we're just like, what? That's stupid. Why should we do that? I mean, Dad we're going to listen. Dad says to do it. So we're going to do it. Yep. And then as soon as we get there, we're just like, oh, oh. <laughs> it's all sand <laughs> with nothing solid for you to put the doorknob on. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Originally, were you just going to let us find out yeah. that? Oh, see. Oh, <laughs> the Undertaker. That's nice to us. That's nice. He's like, oh, these dumb children. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but after that, we finally, 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 finally head south to Kalkinar. Now, here is where some of the problems start coming out and some of it we saw on our own 
Some of it Jess pointed out to us. Mm-hmm. This is really where Jess's feedback became super invaluable. Yeah. And like, I'm going to keep saying that because it's going to continue to be true. But she was helping us with the kind of beginning and the the establishing a lot of this stuff. And it kind of helped with post-production throughout season four and was able to point out some kind of problematic things right away. Some kind of problematic things and some very problematic things. Because... Uh-huh. Um, Talk a little bit about that. Right about this time, I had rediscovered my love of the Mummy movies. Which, who doesn't love those movies? Like, I love those movies. They're problematic, but... Yeah. God, they were so much fun to watch. And, and then also Stargate, weren't you also saying that Stargate you wanted, too, like, you yeah. wanted to, like, I remember we were at work and you're like, I'm going to have my Stargate moment. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I, 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 neither one of us have seen Stargate. Yeah, and, uh, I have no, and I have no desire to see Stargate. So I'm I like, have seen the Stargate that's in Detroit. There is a Stargate in Detroit. Well, yeah, but that one doesn't count because it's surrounded by trash. But <laughs> So, yeah, Stargate, the mummy movies. I was really, had I had Egypt on the brain. Mm-hmm. But not Egypt, Egypt. It was like pop culture, American, yeah. Hollywood, racist Egypt. Yeah. Which, okay, I will say, I think a lot of people like have that sort of vision. when They think of like, when they think of Egypt, what's going to come to mind first is going to be like Indiana Jones or The Mummy. At least in the U.S. But we are kind of all products of the pop culture that we grew up with and... That's not really our fault, but it is our job to unlearn those racist tropes and those that racist imagery. Yeah. And we did a lot of unlearning this season. We yeah. did. Uh, especially, uh, initially, I didn't do my due diligence uh, in going into a situation like this. But we also didn't recognize it when we were there either. So True. This, was, this was a failure for all three of us as far as like not recognizing... Like, this might not be the best idea. And a learning experience. But it was a learning experience, and we did fix it. And, mm-hmm. again, big thank you to Jess for, like, even though she's not necessarily, like, a sensitivity reader, she is very socially literate. And she was able to recognize a lot of the problems that we didn't see at the table and maybe wouldn't have seen in post-production. That's happened before. And, like, and she is a fresh pair of eyes. So she's a fresh pair of eyes that's, seen a lot <laughs> and knows a wise pair of eyes yeah. wizened wizened with many with time. many blog posts that she's read <laughs> so she gave us some really valuable feedback about things that like she was basically like you need to change this and we were like uh huh mm-hmm. yeah, we sure do we sure oh, do we sure yep. do and so we did a lot of I think in the recording, we did a lot of... We didn't re-record, like, huge parts of this initial exploration of the city of uh, city of Kalkinar, but we did make little tweaks to the recording to take out some overtly racist stuff. Mm-hmm. As well as some of the attitudes that we had. Um, yeah. I think originally... Originally, Talia was very off-put by, by District 3, and... Like, originally, Talia was more frustrated that they weren't finding Brown, and they were in a situation where all of a sudden they were the bad guys, and they were like, absolutely not. I No, I've worked too damn hard, you know. So, originally, she had this very aggressive attitude, attitude towards District 3. Also, because she's just kind of an aggressive person. Yeah. 
and it, but it got way out of hand and it was very and it came off as like these people are like don't know how to do things right yeah which is just like oh that is not very a good look. very colonial kind of attitude yeah it was for, bad for myself i tend to just chew on the scenery a lot at the table and so i catch myself like wow i was really really going off on this like yeah and and i don't know that, and that's not really what i was meaning to portray at the table like it was more talia's just frustration of because Talia has a very black and white view of things sometimes, mm-hmm. and which we'll get into a little bit later. But like her point of view is just like I'm in the right here. Why aren't you like unless you're also bad? Why aren't you also coming with me on this? Mm-hmm. Which did not translate well, and I think ultimately a lot of that was cut out, mm-hmm. and a lot of like her more like dismissive attitude towards people because of her frustration was mm-hmm. cut out because like it did not come off well. It mm-hmm. did not come off the way I wanted it to. Just contextualized a lot of these with like asking us like why would Talia or Celine be reacting this way if this is their history? Like I had Celine originally be very flippant about the beliefs of the people of District Three and I think you did too. A little I think bit. at one point someone like had described that the local um, understanding of history is that the twelve like created water or something along those lines. It was lawmaker Bisha had thrown their eyes into the river or something. So yeah, you're you're both uh, you're both on the tr- right track there. It was lawmaker Bisha and she had conjured the river from the base of the spires that Kalkanar was built around. Yeah. And it, then she threw her eyes into the water to create the fish of of the river. Okay. That's what it was. And I think Talia's original reaction was just like, well, that's dumb. And Celine's was too. And uh, Jess rightly pointed out, why would either of them think that's dumb? Yeah, that's they're magic. Both, they're, yeah, they come from a world where magic is commonplace and... Celine especially has these beliefs about the Undertaker and just this kind of faith in general. Why would that why would that seem out of place to her? And that comes back to kind of our biases and our prejudices as players. And again, for me, chewing on the scenery. Yeah, it, I think I think if I were to think back on what Tally was feeling at that moment, like they had already been told that the twelve were like responsible for certain things or I think it was the captain of the guard that they encountered Mm -hmm. and the captain of the guard kind of like gave them the lowdown of like the 12 are responsible for everything so to hear that the 12 did something good Talia was just like not having it (laughs) (laughs) but it didn't sound that way in the recording what it sounded like was like why are like like Jess pointed out like all of these things don't make sense for Mm -hmm. the characters to be feeling and so a lot of that got cut out. We added in a couple of like little tiny things to like just like flesh out the scene to what would have made more sense for either of them yeah. to be thinking or saying. Because sure, it, modern District One, this you you don't hear these sorts of stories in like the modern day of District One. However, stories that you have heard about great magic in the past or things like that especially pre-sundering yeah like it's like just like powerful powerful wizards doing tons of magic shit 
Like that, and that totally like tracks because yeah. they have literally encountered people that can do all of those things. Yeah. So, it but does... all of those things are, for lack of a better term, white coded. Yeah. And so then when we go to a place that is explicitly not white coded and suddenly we're very hostile towards all of their beliefs and all of their history and all of their magical great feats, it's 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 bad. It's a bad look. It yeah. was a bad look. So that stuff got changed. We But took- again, pop culture kind of tropes that we were kind of going along with and not resisting as much as we should have. And thankfully just pointed out a lot of things that we should have changed and we did change them. And yep. this was another good example of we can change things in post-production we don't ha- we, we are not beholden to the original recording that was made like three years ago yep I think one of the things that, like, if we ever got a bigger budget, I would definitely, like, hire a sensitivity reader. Oh, for sure. Like, mm-hmm. for sure, that would be, like, one of the major things. But Jess has been doing a really good job, like, kind of being our surrogate for that. At least being be- our stand-in. Being our stand-in, even though I'm, I'm sure she... Um, would also love us to get somebody. So that's definitely in the cards for, you know. Um, it's a goal. It's a goal. Yeah. But uh, for now, we're, you know, we're doing our best. And thankfully, we were able to change a lot of stuff. Yeah. Which brings us to a character that was originally not even named, but just like brought up to introduce legacy. Yeah. But ended up having like an, a major role. Yeah. So Selvikia. Selvikia, yeah. Yep. We'll, we will talk more about her later, but I want to know about legacy. Like I want to know what your thought process was behind the creation of legacy and kind of what your intent was and what was your inspiration. So inspiration wise, it was actually quite a few things. Um, I know leprosy was kind of like leprosy was, was one of those. Leprosy is the best like real world real world analog to the social implications of the disease. Mm-hmm. The first ones, which we might get into more a little bit later, these beings of energy possessing people and causing this illness. It's a lot of different things because part of it comes. I remember these mobs from uh world of warcraft okay um cool (laughs) no i mean it cool uh good start yeah well what probably doesn't help is that they were kind of egyptian themed as well oh the ones with like all the wrappings around them the wrappings yeah i freaking loved those those i know i found them so i like they they look so cool. I'm pretty sure that my character was like dating one of them. No, I'm no <laughs> yeah, seriously. No, she was. She was, was the dating the convict. In, in, she was dating the convict from the, the Violet Hole. Yeah. <laughs> I, could, so, I could I could see the inspiration. Yeah. So that energy being, I found like really cool, and that that had been in my head for well, like a decade at least. The energy beings causing like an infection or in an illness was actually uh, very much a uh, Stargate thing, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, there's ascended being, a being of energy inhabiting a human uh, body, and just the energy eats away at the human host. Mm-hmm. It, it, like I said, it was a combination of like 50 different things yeah. uh, into what I think still think is a very interesting plot point especially given um, its relevance to history of the Anthonian Empire that plays into it as well, which I think we'll get into more a bit later. 
But as we keep going, do we uh, need to explore some more of District 3's culture as we continue our search for um, that guy? Brown. Brown, that's, for the, that's the one. Uh, we were on to Renal. We're yeah. on to Renal. 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 was a highlight of, yeah. uh, for us. We're just like, Renal! Yeah, I think also it like comes across like we're overly excited to see Renal. I think because we were also playing up the fact that we were really upset that we were here. Yeah, <laughs> we're just like it's like District Three is terrible. <gasps> Friend, yeah. like we were so excited, but it was a lot of fun to like have like somebody that because like, we could go back and forth with the house, which you know throughout the series we abused to oh, the yeah. utmost. I would say utilize. Utilize, yes, that's a nicer term. To it say is, it. but it would it it also is like someone's here with us. It's like oh god, we're not alone. I mm-hmm. also remember you and I and our characters were having some like crisis about being wanted again. Oh god, and we were just so like we right. were like we then asking Renal like, are you wanted? And she's like, oh yeah. yeah. And so it's like. <laughs> Oh, good. So Phew, this isn't we, this. We're I, not. We don't stand out. I mean, we do stand out, but it's not like. <laughs> oh God, we laughed our butts off at the table. So here is actually something that thankfully was cut because it it played into some of the problematic elements. But initially, the idea was that the government here was so corrupt that, like, literally seventy percent of the people on the road with you were technically wanted for some reason or another. And it's not that these people had necessarily even done anything wrong. It is just that they had transgressed in the eyes of the Twelve. Or had something they wanted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was an element we we ended up removing. Whereas, like, it's a government, so it's corrupt. As far as government, just just insofar as it's a government. It's a government. It's corrupt. It's government that's run by people, and people are corrupt sometimes. Yeah. And you know we're we're dealing we're dealing with hints of that in our own district, so it's not yeah. like it's anything new to us. It was just the law system was a little bit different, which is not a bad thing. It just but we inherently were making it worse with our characters' stupid fucking comments. Yeah. So we had to like track that back a bit and be like, this is a government that's bad, just like yours. Yeah. You know, there's something really overtly bad about that. I like to think that Renal is wanted for a similar reason that we're wanted, is that she probably, someone probably, like, got on her nerves mm-hmm. and she killed them. Or punched them. Or punched them. Or, like, them. started a bar fight or something. Something. On in, accident. They don't necessarily want her because they want to put her in the zoo the way they want to put Celine in the zoo, but they want, that she's wanted because she also had enough with someone's shit. Yeah. With the wrong person's shit. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. And then she... She actually was captured and broke out of prison. Excellent. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. I didn't know about that. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. We stand a queen. We do. So, yeah, it was fun having Renal. But it was uh, also fun getting to know her, too. Yeah. But then we also get to meet some of the bounty hunters from District 3, which bounty hunters had a different... The term bounty hunter had a different connotation in District 3, but not really when you step back and think about it, which is they are... They're tasked by the government to go pick somebody up. Yeah. Or kill them. Or do something. Yeah. Do some kind of violence. And so we were all like, oh, it's so different here. And then it's like, is it? Is it, is it, it though? Is it, is it though? It's really not. And yeah. this, I actually think this does work because it shows Celine and Talia's bias toward their own profession. Yeah. And which is another kind of point that's starting to change a little bit. But we'll get into that at the end of the season. 
Yeah, I think this shows a really good um, view of the flaw in Talia's thinking. And Celine's. It's really funny because Talia, like, oscillates between, like, a lawful and a chaotic more so than she does, like, good or bad. She's kind of usually on a, like, a good level, a good or neutral level. But, like, her ability to, like, flip between absolute chaos and lawful is very, like, that goes back and forth a lot. Yeah. And... There are certain things in her life that she has a lot of very straightforward, lawful views about. And one of them is her own sense of honor and her own sense of pride of what she's doing. To her, a bounty hunter is is not, like, attached to any of the, the government <laughs> stuff. What? It's just really funny that she's like, oh yeah, I'm, no, no, no. Like, I'm not attached to the government. I'm not attached to the government. Like she's a free literally, agent. literally, your checks are signed by the, the government. government. Yeah. yeah, she, she, to her, she is a free agent that is out to do good and get money as she goes. But and she's not, and she's not wrong about that, as far as what she's doing. Yes, however. Anybody with any sort of critical thinking skills can, like, take a step back and go, wait a minute, you're not a free agent. All the work you're getting is from the government. Mm -hmm. She doesn't take private contractors. This is all coming from sheriffs. Yeah. This is all coming sometimes from the DMP when they weren't involved with the DMP. Like, she's getting stuff from the government. Even the DMP is a government entity. Exactly. And now, and before the DMP disbanded, she was a part of the literal government, even though she doesn't think of herself that way. Yeah. So, like, you have that. It's a lot of cognitive dissonance, and I think that's really interesting in a character when you intentionally give them cognitive dissonance that they need to sort out. Yeah. And this was kind of the beginning of it, is that these bounty hunters, are they much different? No, they're exactly the same. The only difference is they're who b- they're working for. The, who they're working for and that their status is a bit more exalted. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Talia is kind of seen more as like the ruffian that couldn't get a job at the DMP, the militia or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, that that's sort of like. It's the, it's the equivalent of driving an Uber. Yeah. Yeah. Like or um, yeah, something along those lines. A little a little more like, you know, rough, I guess. But it's like, oh, they're they're just out there making money, you know. It's like, oh, I guess, yeah, call it a bounty hunter. But these guys, these are like elites, mm-hmm. you know. They are considered, you know, they have status, whereas Talia does not. Even as a DMP member, she does not. So to her, these people are obviously like bad because of like not only their status, but they're not doing it for the same reason that she thinks she that people should be doing this sort of thing. Yeah. We get to meet some of these bounty hunters, which are really cool. Yeah. yeah. Really, really cool. So we met Ralboron. Ralboron. Which it, we I, should have romanced instead of <laughs> killing. Now that I know that they're one of those cool World of Warcraft energy dudes with the wrappings around them. God damn it. But alas, we killed them. Yep. And I remember when they showed up and they had that Goristro, I was like, I want that skull because <laughs> Selene is a loot gremlin. Uh-huh. I mean, we're both loot gremlins, uh-huh. but like Tally is a different sort of loot gremlin. <laughs> like I, I remember thinking like once we're done with this fight and obviously we're going to win cuz we're the player characters, but like I want that skull. <laughs> and like I remember 
if you go back and listen to the recording, I hope you didn't cut it out. Maybe you did. I don't remember. But the when like like the garistra was like burning away, and I was kind of like, oh, I guess no skull for me. And you're like, and all that's left are the manacles and its skull. And the noise I made yeah. was in there, inhuman yeah. because, like, and I can't mine. even tell if that was Celine or me. <laughs> yeah, you like you yelled and were like. And you like threw yourself at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No one else could touch it. Like anybody else would want the thing. It was so fucking funny. (laughs) Like in case anybody else tried to take it. Like my body was thrown on it. Like it's mine. It's mine. No one else can have it. Like hundred hundred pound skull. Who's gonna take it, Celine? Like eight or nine seasons in, she's still like showing the skull off to people. Well, yeah, she hung it. She hung it in the in the foyer. Yeah, she. But uh, so we so we met Ralboron. We also met um, Batman. Yeah, I forget his name. I forget his name. It was just the Hunter in in yeah, my I don't notes. Think he, I, I don't know if he got named or I don't remember if he did. I've been calling him Batman. Well, yeah, it was Batman because I mean, yeah. he like kept turning into things. A little little teeny behind the scenes thing that I think is hilarious is that Molly and I used to work together. And we were at work and Molly was complaining, like, I give you so many cool items and you don't use them. Because we all have ADHD and we forget we have them sometimes. And so, like, I remember, like, telling Chris, like, hey, make sure to, like, take a look at what we've got. Because Molly was bitching about the fact that we don't ever use what I don't think you ever, you didn't tell me that. Didn't I? No, you never mentioned it. Well, I thought it real hard. Maybe you heard it. Maybe. But I just remember, like, like, we all have ADHD. So, like, sometimes. As this this guy is. As as the as Batman is getting is about to get away, we're all thinking, <laughs> how can we not let him get away? And Chris I, is looking through the the what what do we got? What do we got? What do we got? Well, I actually wanted this guy to get away because I wanted him to like get away and then come back too stronger bad. to too like hunt bad. you guys some more. You were complaining that we don't no, use yeah. the stuff and you those gave us. Words. And, and then, and those then it's, words. it's pretty funny. I don't know if I did it in the, re- I know I did it in the recording, but I know that like there was a minute, there was like a beat of like, he's getting away and all of us were kind of like, Molly was waiting for us to do something. Megzi and I were like thinking, how are we going to stop him with what we've got? You know, and You're looking through, like, what we have in our inventory. And just, like, so there's, like, this beat of silence before all of a sudden, hey, what does the spider blunderbuss do? And, like, the face there, that there's Molly another, made, There's another beat of silence as Molly Molly's realizes does this thing. <laughs> what, the sp- what that is, the fact that she gave it to us two seasons ago, that we have remembered that we have it, what it does, and how we're going to use it. And it all, like, all of that, like, went all by her face, face journey just in, like, happens. a second. And it was funny as hell. <laughs> yep. And we just kind of, like, lost it for a second because I knew, I'm like, this, this, this mother's going down. <laughs> and that's, like, one of, like, we do, a, we quote each other a lot of, like, the funniest shit that we said. In the podcast, and that's one that always comes up is, hey, what does the spider blunderbuss do? <laughs> that and apparently neat is like another neat. one. Neat. neat. That's um, next season. That's, that's spoilers. next season. That's sorry. spoilers, but y'all will love it <laughs> yeah. when it happens. And I'll explain why I about died laughing when we do the retro for season five. Yep. So it was, yeah, what does the spider blunderbuss do is a meme at our table because it was just so funny. It yeah. was just like, I do, did you even think for a second that I would... No, like, you were trying to get it to go away. I was, uh, I, you were I trying was, to get it to run away. I was and... trying to get him to run away, and then it's like, what is spider blunderbuss? 
It shoots web. <laughs> it shoots web. It casts the spell. It casts the spell web. Excellent. I use that. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I gotta I, I gotta commend you. Even though you wanted this guy to get away, you very easily could have uh, say, "Oh, it doesn't work for whatever reason," or, or you you could you could have insisted that he got get away, but like, nope. You got it. You're rewarding player ingenuity. <laughs> it was a dexterity saving throw on his part, and he failed it. And it was just like, so passes Batman. So passes Batman. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun. That was a fun fight because, like, in the middle of that, like, but right as that was starting, um, Talia did one of her patented tricks of scaring people off, which is she <laughs> yeah. got into her dire wolf form and started running around. And like scaring everybody to like run away. Yeah. It's like if everybody gets out of the way, it won't. Was it? I know there was some back and forth about this. Was it the dire wolf or was it normal wolf? It was the dire wolf. Okay. But it wasn't her took the potion. Ah, uh, okay, okay. It wasn't monster dire wolf. Right. So as as we're recording these, we all sometimes remember things a little differently. And so there's a times where it's like, did this happen this season? Yeah, it happened like this. No, it didn't happen like that. Well, we'll have to see how the rec- well, we'll have to wait and see in the recording. Yeah, I could have sworn that you took the. You took the, the large potion. No, no. This was but. just normal direwolf form that she just ran around. No, you've still got that enlarged <clears throat> potion. I still so got that enlarged potion. Keep listening, dear listeners, and see if that pops up. But uh. anyway, so yeah, she ran around the streets. So that was a big hoopla, and just like, and then there was a tower to the twelve that they totally fucking destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Did we actually just? Did we actually knock it down? I don't know if we knocked no. it down completely, but we definitely did some damage. Definitely did some, it's definitely like leaning now. Yeah, the, the leaning, leaning tower, tower of the twelve. <laughs> we also. I'm going to jump a little bit ahead here since we're talking about bounty hunters. But a little bit later in the story, we also meet the Iron Horseman. Oh yes, the Iron Horseman, who we love to hate and hate to love. We love him and hate him. And he we'll is... talk. And we'll talk. I, I think we'll talk more a little about who he is later when we get to the end of the season. Mm-hmm. But can you talk a little bit about what he is? So the Iron Horseman, uh, really, actually, again, not exactly in the form he took, but kind of always was a part of. Was was always kicking around the in the back of my head as part of the inspiration for the Fey Wild West, specifically uh, like a couple other characters in the show. He was inspired by a song, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the Iron Horseman from The Cog is Dead. Yeah, and really, it's just as simple as a guy on a mechanical horse that saves people. But then I. Took that he and does was just the like opposite of this that. guy. This guy kind of does the opposite of that. He was cool. He was yeah. uh, he was a surprise out in the desert. You the sound effects you found for him was just perfect. Celine almost killed him. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> Celine was was ready to throw hands when she came up on him in the desert. But he, then Tali really was like, cool. "Do not leave him alone. We need him later." His his aesthetic. That's the plot. Leave him alone. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think that at the time. But... We didn't. Well, we didn't know, but that that's essentially what happened. Yep. His aesthetic is something that I'm a huge fan of. The like steampunk cyborg kind yep. of uh, kind of look, and he's a unfortunately brilliant inventor. Yep. 
Unfortunately. And also a That's per- such a good line. Also a corrupt piece of shit. Yeah. And like, <laughs> he sucks, but he's also great. I know. He's one of those characters that's like, oh God, you piece of shit. I love I, you. I hate you, but I I can't wait to, I, but every, if it was like a show or something, every time you show up, I can't wait to see what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just he was like a that, cool. That piece of shit that just like. <laughs> You are, you, are, you, 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 you are the worst. You are the worst. You are the worst. You are the worst. That's why he would have been my favorite character. Yep. Yep. It's true. But uh, back to the fight with Batman, or the, lo- the you know, Batman losing his life, unfortunately, Rip. Um, we meet another character, which I don't know how our feelings are on that as far as like, oh, we love to hate him or hate to love him. I hate him. Um, I also hate him. Yes, I think. I think, every- I think I everybody. Hates I don't him. think I even like love to hate him or hate to love him. I think I just like hate yeah, him. I think yeah. he's just straight up, and that's Brother Martin. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you know who Brother Martin is. You know what what he is. What he is. But Brother Martin appears at this point, and um, this scene actually had an interesting bit because Megzi had some thoughts about it. Yeah, I'm gonna put you on the spot again, Molly, and mm-hmm. I'm sorry about As this, but I'm absolutely not sorry about this. I hate spoilers. It's not because I don't want to know what happens. It's the, I mean, quite honestly, I want to know what what people have got planned, and it fucking kills me that I can't get spoilers. That's really what it is. I can't be given spoilers because with my the, with my, the way my brain works and my memory issues, I can't separate consistently what I know versus what my character knows. And so that's why I am very insistent do not spoil things for me. Do not tell me what's coming up. I literally will not be able to perform or play as my character because I will constantly be trying to weigh wh- how would my character react. It won't be authentic. Mm-hmm. And I told you this. Yep. And you spoiled this for me anyway. Yes. Before we even got to District 3, you had told me what was going on with Brother Martin. And that really messed up my playing for the whole season after we met him. And to be fair, to be fair, it did not sound like that in the recording. And I'm glad because there was a lot of mental gymnastics going on in my head of like, okay, I know this guy is the plot, so we have to follow him. And like, <laughs> like just listening to this was like, why didn't you leave that guy in the desert? And I'm like, because I knew he was the plot and we had to follow him. But I, I I, hope, I think and I hope that I managed to construct justifications for why for why Celine didn't want to leave him out in the desert, which was that, one, this was a person that she, in, if didn't grow up with, he, she grew up with him around because he was a cleric of the mother who was mm-hmm. around at the cathedral. So she, and he was a, an exalted member of the Cathedral of the Mother. So she had kind of a, a grudging respect for him. And also because the Undertaker fucking told her to. And she trusts the Undertaker. Whether he's telling her to take a plank of wood to District 3 or to watch this guy, she's going to do what he says. And so I, I'm glad you say that it doesn't come across like I was... It doesn't. Struggling, because I definitely was. Uh, it didn't sound that way to me, especially because, like, she talks to the Undertaker, and the Undertaker says to watch him. And Celine, the next time she talks to Talia, she tells Talia the Undertaker said to l- watch over him. So it was a really Smooth. small, yeah. in- different interpretation 
of like, oh, just thinking this is what he meant when that's not what he meant. And it was really easy the way you did that. And I think a lot, I don't know how many people picked up on that, that that's what happened. It's like Celine misinterpreting what that was. Or if they did pick up on it, it's like, you know, they might have gone, mm, that's not exactly what he said, but whatever. And then as Martin starts to show signs that shit is going on with him, you know, people will start, you know, p putting those pieces together. So you inadvertently, I don't know if you did that on purpose, but you did that. It added to the the breadcrumbs of something is wrong. <laughs> I sort of did that on not on purpose, like, oh, I'm going to leave these breadcrumbs. But I was more like, I have to come up with a justification to not leave him in the desert because he is the plot and we need mm -hmm. to follow him. And so I, it was kind of like uh, backfilling. It it worked really, really well. Like Talia had a much more practical, um, albeit stupid reason. Um, that as, sense of honor of that hers. That sense of honor of hers. Like that was her reasoning for not wanting to leave him in the desert. And also because Celine was not, was, was kind of not being insistent that they help him, but was kind of being insistent that, that was advocating for yeah. helping him mm -hmm. for the reasons I mentioned before. Yeah, and that also plays a lot into Talia's sensibilities where, like, the past is a big deal to her and your relationships with the past is a big deal um, with her. And also she mentioned that the Undertaker had said to watch over him. The Undertaker is now Talia's patron. Yeah. <laughs> she and father-in-law. Father and father-in-law. She does what he says. Like, not explicitly, but like, you know, that's like, I'm not getting in trouble with him. Absolutely fucking not. I just got this job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to piss off the boss on my first day. Yeah, yeah. That kind of mentality. But like all of those... The, all of those collected, it did not sound like you were struggling. So, at the same a plus. Well, thank you. At the same time, if Celine had been like, you want to leave him in the desert? Absolutely. We're going to leave him in the desert. <laughs> Which I, I will as never... soon as wife gets a bad idea, absolutely we're going with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there was a part of Talia that absolutely wanted to leave him in the desert. Talia yeah. got a bad feeling about him from the get-go. That's something else. That... And I think and I think Celine did too, but she was kind of ignoring it because of, again, the reasons I had mentioned previously. Yeah, exactly. Talia has kind of prided herself on being a really good judge of character and like, who she is willing to open up to and who she is, what she sees in people. And, and for the most part, she's kind of been right. She saw something in James. James has become literally her best friend and a, a practically her brother in her eyes. Like he has lived up to that name. She has seen good things in people and it has paid off. She has also seen bad things in people, and it is like mm -hmm. so. But like, she saw something in Martin that she didn't like almost instantly, and she didn't know why. She just something about him was off. But she gave her word. Mm -hmm. Celine told her that the Undertaker, you know, said to watch over him, and this is a person from Celine's past. She's gonna go with it. She doesn't like it. But she needs the inf like he gave her the information. She has to follow through mm -hmm. for everything, and I think it really, really worked. And every and I think everybody could see like something was fucking off, but no one could put their finger on what. Yeah, which I think works. I, I hope it. I hope it works. I think it worked out really well. Personally, I mean, I was the one editing, but so uh, we kind of got distracted a little bit because you meant to put me on the spot, and then that w went off 
into the like actually going over <laughs> everything else with, with Martin as to why I told you I have no idea I know very, very excited <laughs> I think that's probably what it was is that yeah. you were excited to that you had these ideas and you wanted to tell me about them probably and, and I probably was, forgot <laughs> and I was like don't spoil please yeah. you're gonna get a shitty performance out of me if you spoil and I yeah. know I know my limits. I know what I can do and what I can't, and there's a lot I can't do, including think for two people at once. Speaking of breadcrumbs with Martin, there were definitely certain things that I dropped in. Some that I'm that were like really subtle and that I'm really happy about. But like, you know, the whole thing with Father Martin. Mm-hmm. Which uh Megs, we, uh you had Celine pick up pretty quickly and was Definitely a main point for a while that something's not quite right here. From the context of the story and not the, necessarily the context of my struggling to play, uh, that was kind of a, a inkling for Selena. Like, this, uh, maybe I should leave him in the desert. <laughs> but again, she's listening to her dad. And, you oh. know, people get eaten by purple worms in the desert all the time, I've been told. Do they? Hmm. They do. Interesting. Yeah. He was almost. (laughs) 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 But then uh, one that was really subtle and just flew under the radar in the moment was when you were showing him the house and uh, like introducing the idea of the magical servants. You You had mentioned them and said, you don't worry about them. You don't you don't really see or hear them until you need them. Mm-hmm. And he said, good job at servants. I remember that. I remember thinking, oh, this guy's probably grown up with a silver spoon. I didn't know how right I was. Yeah. But like it, it registered at the time, but I brushed, but Talia and I both like, well, I wouldn't say I did necessarily, but like Talia's reasoning, like brushing that off. It's like, oh God. You're rich, aren't you? <laughs> and not like us type rich, but like... You're wealthy. You're wealthy. Mm-hmm. Ugh, gross. I think that's what she... I mean, but it, it putting the pieces together, like... Ugh. It's just like... <laughs> yeah, it's just like... Mm, more clues that something was up with Father Martin was the constant eating. Which we I, did pick up on. That, I think, was the biggest like red flag. I think we, we diagnosed it properly that he was using a lot of magical energy. Yeah. Like, I think that's what we came to because there's no way, like either that or he's got a tapeworm, or, which didn't or seem like, interesting. <laughs> or, you know, this guy's been out in the desert. Maybe he's just really hungry. There were a lot of, of things that we could kind of explain it away. Yeah. But and- we were also like, it's been days of him eating like nonstop. For the most part, like as soon as he gets in the house, something's up. And we were under the impression that maybe he's using a lot of magical energy. And then when we find out later that he has legacy, I think the conclusion we drew, I don't know if it's in the recording, but I think the conclusion we were thinking was originally that, oh, he's using his powers to hold back legacy 
to kind of keep it from people, which is why he's eating so much because he's basically like constantly spell casting or something along those lines. I know that's not how it's, it works the, in D&D. It, the, it, the reason he's eating so much must be because of legacy because there's no other discernible reason. Yeah. So like in the story, that's kind of how we mm-hmm. we played it. We played it off. Although like all of us were just going, something's fucking up. Like, yeah. But um, and that and that pissed off Talia even more because she invited him into their house. And she's very territorial when mm-hmm. it comes to her house. And she brought somebody in that's like got a disease, uh, like a, a magical a co- disease, a, a communicable one. Yeah. And this was also the first time. This was the first instance of outright deception. Yeah. Oh, so deception by omission, but deception. Yeah. And Talia was fucking pissed. Mm-hmm. Like she was rightfully. Like, she was yeah. ready. Yeah. Cause she endangered her kids. Yeah. And her and her wife. Like that was. That that I think was kind of the the last straw because that leads into what happens in later, um, which we'll we'll get to that in a second. But before we head out into the desert, we added an entirely new scene. <laughs> we did. We with, did with um, Slovakia. Right. Yeah. I was like, wait, what scene? Yes. So uh, with Slovakia, because uh, we wanted to establish a couple of things. One, we wanted to make her a, a more a named character and more influential character for reasons that become more apparent at the end of the season. So this was something that Jess had asked us early on when we were discovering that uh, District 3 and our reaction to it was problematic to be kind. Um, One of the things she asked is like, did you guys make any friends in District 3? And we admittedly didn't because we were, our attitudes and our characters' attitudes towards it was like contempt and hostile mm-hmm. and so the people weren't really people in our eyes they were just set dressing yeah which is bad mm-hmm. um, yeah. for multiple reasons so and one of the things we we kind of went back and and thought about was just like well what are the opportunities we had to make friends and there were a couple of instances like we had we had that nice chat with the orc and his friends um but someone who stood out to us was uh specifically megzi who's like what about that woman that I talked to with Legacy because mm-hmm. we have to go back to Legacy anyway. Yeah. And Molly did a really good job of making this person um, a character that we interacted with and um, and gave way more depth to the one originally she wasn't even named. Like we just yeah. met her on the road and that was it. And like she was basically there to establish Legacy as a thing and then off into the distance. Yeah. But she became Sylvikia, who had a grandmother that passed away. So she was given way more depth. She was given way more story. We learned way more about the culture and, like, everyone's feelings about it. And and Celine was able to make a connection with somebody. That, and that all was added in post. Like, that, this was all recorded afterwards. And um, I think we did a pretty good job. I think, I think we all did great. Yeah. Yeah. And Molly added in an entirely new view of the cosmos even yeah so uh an entirely new facet of death yeah i mean death takes many forms in district one uh based on the beliefs of the people there it's the undertaker here in district three he is known as rarker the uh the night jackal mm-hmm. um guiding uh the souls of those who pass on to uh, dance in the sky as into, starlight into the stars, which I, I love it too. It's such a good, it's it's 
it goes along with the Egyptian theme you were going for in a much more tasteful way, mm-hmm. I think. Yep, in in uh, ancient Egyptian lore, uh, the god the the god Anubis is the uh, guide or guardian of the dead. He's not necessarily the god of death. That's Osiris, um, but Anubis is the one that guides the dead to the scales to where their heart will be weighed by a feather by Osiris mm-hmm. and a couple other ones. A tote is probably in there too. I don't remember. Tote. Tote. We love tote. But Anubis is the guide. He's the one that guides you to the spot you're supposed to go to where you will go either way. Just You're kind of a nerd. I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. Like my Wild West nerd and my ancient Egyptian nerdness. Go. I could tell you way more than you need to know about ancient <laughs> Egyptian, Egyptian life and its mythology than you ever need to know. But one of the things that was really cool is that, you know, to have that in our story where you have Raker, who is not necessarily the god of death, or is the god of death, but is more of a guide that guides you up into the stars. To me, it meant a lot. Like, it's like, oh, that's so cute. That's so sweet. Like, and it and it ties in thematically. It really works with the rest of the series mm-hmm. in a very odd way, which I can't reveal now, but it was just like... That's really thematically on point, Molly. Good job. <laughs> and I I like it because in my personal beliefs, divinity takes many forms. And divinity is something that is not understandable by us mortals in only one way. We have kind of our own facet that we see divinity as, but there are many more facets to it. And so I like the idea that Rarker and The Undertaker are the same person and not one of them is more of of himself than the other it's just based on people's beliefs and how they experience divinity and so i really like the idea that divinity takes more than one form and has more than one name it goes towards the lore of the world which is all the extra planar realms have kind of been locked off and some of them are open but did the divine have not been able to get past whatever's locking them we'll get to that in a minute um yeah. but so few influences are able to get through and it makes sense that those that have a death god you know where there's only one death actual god that rules over death that is available out into the material plane it would make sense that that death like that death god taking on different forms because as we've established the gods are not necessarily free agents they are bound by very specific rules based on the belief of the people that give them the power mm-hmm. so for district 3 who believe in the rocker Rocker will appear in a very specific way based on someone's beliefs. In District 1 and 2, and possibly others, we don't know, he has a very specific identity of the Undertaker. He will appear the way people perceive him. So, like, that kind of ties in with the lore of the world. Like, gods are not free agents. They have to adhere to very specific rules and they are different depending on where you go. Mm-hmm. And I think that that makes sense to the lore. And it was really cool because Talia got to go back into, uh, I think we were st- we started calling it from this point Limbo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this the, is where Limbo was kind of established. Yeah, where the this between space 
that Talia can kind of move freely through and uh, when called. And she, you know, and her, <laughs> she was very confused. She's like, I don't see a door. Oh, uh, I guess we will wander around until yeah. we find one. It's like, no, no, no. Here's this one. I mean, and, ga- and no, it this gave is how her... it's supposed to go. Yeah. And it was like the Undertaker had just like become her patron and was kind of giving her like a, hey, heads up. I'm not just the Undertaker. Yeah. And it was, so it was kind of cool. Like, it's like, oh, perspective. Holy I love shit. it. <laughs> I love it. It was, it was really cool. But that all was done in post. Like we, that was yes. We we added that in, and it turned out really really well. I think I edited that really cool too. Yeah, it was, yeah. Really yeah, proud of the way it that was got very edited. cool. But All right, then we actually get into the desert. Yep, finally we're on our way. Well, we're well, not finally <laughs> because we didn't expect to go to Anthonopolis, but here we are on our way to Anthonopolis. Yep, we killed a purple worm. In 16 seconds flat. 18. 18, sorry, yeah. In, in 18 seconds flat. And uh, this is where we start breaking the game. And this, like, this is your fault, Molly, because, again, we were at work, and you were like, oh, there's this cool spell in Xanathar's Guide called Holy Weapon. And I'm like, oh, neat. What does it do? And what you should have said was it breaks the game. <laughs> <laughs> because that's exactly what it did. As soon as I realized Holy Weapon was a thing, oh, oh, it was over. It was over. That gets um, used a lot. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. it, I think at that point, Molly just was like, I'm going to have to make these people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. when we kill a purple worm in 18 seconds, yeah, it's, that was really your litmus test for like, mm, we're going to make stuff harder from here on out. Yeah. I mean, first it was the guards in Kalkanar when I realized you could roll a two and still hit these guys. As long as your gun doesn't bite you, you're good. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, Okay, yeah, they're they're just dead. Like, <laughs> don't even roll. Yeah, I mean that was a cool moment. It, it, so, oh, it was like, fucking badass. Yeah, yeah, like you know, if, if we're gonna be edgy edge lords, you know that those kinds of moments need to happen. But yeah, it was very like, um, yeah, the purple worm. I think we were very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> that it, we killed it that fast, and we were just like, "Holy shit!" We, we were, are, we, were we were high on that for we like weeks. Oh yeah. god, yeah, and oh, we were we just were, like, "We are unstoppable." We are just like the baddest of asses, you know. You cannot touch this, you know. Just like, holy shit! It's really funny later on in the season. Like Molly's just like, "Ah, I see your badassery. Allow me to give you anxiety." Yeah. <laughs> I see your badassery, and I raise you anxiety. Yeah, but it was just for a week or so, or oh, not even, like longer, longer than, than that. months. Like we went even, to Twitter, even, even after, and... even after the anxiety, we were still like, yeah, but we killed a purple worm in eighteen seconds. Yeah, we. Oh god, we were. That was the only time I think I've metagamed that hard because I, Chris, knew purple worm stuff because mm-hmm. I had fought purple worm before in other games, and. Um, one of the bis- one of the things you know about purple worms as a D and D player is that their um, their stomach acid and their parts are like really fucking powerful. Mm-hmm. So the only time I was just like Molly, please let me metagame like five seconds, please, 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 please let me have the stomach acid, please. I was just like, please let me metagame a little bit. Tally has no idea what this creature is, but I know stuff but is you so know what? good. But you know what we know from last season is that monster parts are very valuable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if we find something big and new, 
Oh, we're going to take it apart and give it to our friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's how we became friends. Is I give you monster pong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we still have a corpse in the... Um, we have still ha- we still have a spider corpse in the bag of holding. For childhood. It's never coming out. <laughs> it's going to just stay in there. It'll just be... It'll be mummified by yeah. the time. It's <laughs> just a desiccated oh, spider husk. Spi- <laughs> oh, whoops. That can go on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like the way you think. Yeah, it it it's very funny. So like uh, the purple worm incident was by far one of the highlights of the season for us, just because we remember. That's another meme that comes around. It's like, yeah, but we killed a purple worm in eighteen seconds. <laughs> oh god, it was so funny. I think it, like, and even Martin's reaction. It's like, well, I picked the right ones. Like, yes, you did. Yeah, <laughs> like the last time I encountered one of these, it ate my donkey. <laughs> <laughs> Now, okay, was that was that possessed brother Martin or was that actual brother Martin? No, that I was feel possessed like, brother Martin. Oh, okay, because I, I could see... funnier. I could, but I could also see, like, legit brother Martin coming down here to spread the good word of the mother. Very colonial, but in, like, a, a like a good intentions way, just flawed mm-hmm. intentions. Oh, and going yeah. out into the desert with just a tent and a donkey <laughs> and getting a dose of reality really quick. I even like. I think it's even funnier though that it was Anthony. He's just like, I will get back to my empire. On a, and he's like on a donkey <laughs> yeah. and like this husk of a man. It's like I will get back t- onto my empire and I will kill them all and become k- god king again. And then fucking like clapped. No, nope, nope. right you absolutely <laughs> will not. It's even funnier. You need help. Oh my god, that's just a funny image in my head. It's like you, you tragic piece of shit. Yep. So, yeah. So that happened. <laughs> so that happened. Um, and then right after that, some pretty quickly, something else happens. Yep. As we have been spending all this time in the material plane, we are suddenly reminded that the title of the story is Fay Wild West and go back to some fairy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here is something else that was... Um, added in in post yeah i i know (laughs) like the queen of night and magic she does show up she did show up in the original recording yep but it was it was very it was molly mm, do you remember yes i do you want to say it it was very much (laughs) she, she was trying to intimidate uh celine which I, I feel she succeeded. She, she succeeded in it, but she didn't get what she wanted no. out of Intimidated Celine because, frankly, Celine didn't know because, like, the Sarastra, like, took her to, like, like brought her into her throne room in a dream and was like, where is my husband? And Celine was like, I don't fucking know. Wormst is my husband. I don't know. But not even in that tone of voice. It was more like a, I don't know. But but that was the, yeah. that was her thought was like, shh. He's your husband. You find him. Um, Fuck that guy. I hate that guy. Yeah. However, with this rework that we've been doing of the Queen of Night and Magic, uh, with Jess doing an amazing job voicing her. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Jess. And coming up with some cool concepts for her too, because this was this was a Jess idea. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the stuff that came about in this reconceptualized dream that Sarastra sends to Celine was Jess's idea, which, like, she rightfully said, like, why why was she being intimidating? And it's like, oh, that's a good question. Why is she being intimidating? Like, yeah. 
and and it became much more of a conversation and a meeting of minds yeah, as it were and it gave Celine another perspective about fairies because yes she's trying to reclaim her identity from herself really but there's still this lingering all fairies are bad kind of mentality that she's still trying to get over and so when the queen of nine magic brings her into her realm in a dream her hackles are immediately up like mm-hmm. what do you want from me also because she has never spoken to the queen of night and magic and has only seen her once and it was kind of a terrifying experience so her reaction i think is justified but when sarastra just says oh i just want to talk first of all Celine's like no you don't you want something and then it's like no i do just want to talk sit down let's talk yeah i think it was also a different perspective because like up until this point she's seen fairies that are running the gamut of like either not doing anything like mcnevin as far as we're as far as we know or throwing these like extravagant parties and being frivolous and just like or being horrible here was somebody who was talking about like uh, like it's work i'm working i have so much to do i have so many things to think about i have so many people wanting things from me and she was taught like this was the first time from a fairy perspective she was talking about things that were far more practical something celine was used to even though she is celine is a fae and can vibe with the you know the fantastical this was somebody who was kind of speaking to her on a level that made a little bit of sense. It's like, I have a realm to run. Mm -hmm. I have subjects I have to take care of. And they all want something from me. And I can't give everybody everything. And it's like, she was talking about this very practically and giving her practical advice. Like, my job sucks sometimes. Which is not something she's gotten yet. Nick Nevin, I think, was a really good taste of, like, not all fairies are bad. Not all fairies. Yeah. But not in a... But a very broad sense of, like, you got to look out for some of them, but also not really anything practical. Mm-hmm. Not anything Celine didn't already know. Like, be careful of that one. It's like, yeah, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that Jess added to it was just, like, well, Celine asked, like, why did you send everybody away from the wedding? It's just, like, my father was just killed. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Like, do you want to dance after that? <laughs> I don't think so. And it really gave Celine, it was kind of a sobering moment for Celine of like, maybe I should stop making such terrible assumptions about everyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it, it was a really cool moment for Celine to kind of have another connection to the Feywilds. And a familial one, in And fact. a familial one, yeah. Because didn't, Sarastra was the one that pointed out, like, we are both related to... The previous Queen of Night and Magic. Yeah. So we're kind of like sisters. Yeah. And Celine, Celine, like, has never really encountered that before. Like, she's never had really that kind of familial connection with anybody. Not on a level, not on the level of a sibling. Yeah. So to have somebody who's just talking to her about, like, practical stuff, giving her practical advice and treating her like that. I think it was like... Giving her practical advice like a big sister would. Yeah. It was a really nice moment. Yeah. But yeah, and Jess had some really good ideas. Instead of making Sarastra this like 
ultra intimidating figure immediately like that. Because, you know, she's a powerful Feylord and all the Feylords at this point are like really intimidating, except for the River King, who is a bitch. Um, <laughs> we love him. We love him. But, you know, for that, it was it was a really good move. And um, and I think really added to what Sarastra is in the future and how she plays her part in the greater story with the Feywild and stuff like that. So that was a cool move. All of that with Sarastra was at or the Queen of Night and Magic. Um, all of that was post. <laughs> like we did, we recorded all of that. That was another thing. So on. So after the dream, we're back to you know dealing with whatever Marn wants us to be doing, and <sighs> this again. And we, you know, knowing that we're going to Anthonopolis, we do have somebody in the story that we know for a fact is connected to the old Anthonian Empire. So we make a trip back to the Grove. Yeah. And uh, I think, was that my idea? I think that was your idea. Yeah. I, yeah, because I, I sent out the Silver Raven mm-hmm. yeah. to to ask Franya about it because. And she was the one that said, if you're going to Anthonopolis, you should probably come here. You should probably yeah. have a talk. Yeah. Yeah. And the information she gave us about Anthonopolis was important, but. I think maybe I'm a little biased about this. I think the most important thing that she told us was that Celine was pregnant. Celine was in fact pregnant. Yes, yeah. um, and that was the first time we figured it out. And yep. that also was a me idea. <laughs> I remember like sitting in the recording, like Vanya should be the one that can tell Celine's pregnant and ask her about it because now would be a really good time to know about that. <laughs> I think originally we cut this completely. I think originally Celine like missed her period or something yeah oh my gosh i totally forgot about that yeah okay and then we had backing a... backing up a little bit so we knew celine was pregnant yeah <laughs> celine and talia didn't know that celine was pregnant so originally and it's kind of sad that the scene got cut out because it was very funny it was very i don't funny. know if it was funny in the recording but it was very funny to record but it happened originally celine found out she was pregnant uh as soon as they got out of Calcanar. Yeah. Because she was having implantation bleeding and had to call in the doctor, Mila, to get James's doorknob or Talden's doorknob. It was somebody's doorknob. Somebody's doorknob and come and check on her. And that's when they originally realized she was pregnant. And this was something that we that we changed in the moment. Like we realized yeah. after the fact, like we're just very excited about this, but mm-hmm. this is kind of a rushed thing that they like the kid was just conceived like last week and now we know we're pregnant. That's not really no, how it works. Really and to be fair, that's not really it's not real really realistic for it to be a like a few weeks later, like this is way too soon. You wouldn't know. Yeah. But we were excited. We were we just were. like, oh my God, she's pregnant. Yay, we're gonna have a baby. We can have know? a little, you know, a, a little unrealistic parts in this story about fairies and shit as a treat as yeah as a treat and also she's a level 20 druid yeah that if if anybody's going to be able to tell this early it's her yeah yeah <laughs> so it, it made sense for franya to be like oh by the way congratulations and then it was a really fun moment we added it a couple the original scene she flipped out obviously um, had Mila come in. Mila said, you're pregnant. And then Celine, you know, did the whole thing. Oh, I need a drink. And, you know, haha, yeah. that's funny. And she's like, no, I really do need a drink. It's like, no, you can't have alcohol. Like, I don't care if that's unrealistic for the time setting that pregnant women didn't know they weren't supposed to drink. I 
I I will be triggered. I'm not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's also it's it's also kind of that balance of of using things that were known in the 1850s as a base and also things that are known in modernity as a base and and, yeah. and balancing that. And and that'll We'll figure that out as we go. Yeah, it's kind of a, a back and forth with it. But we kind of retained a lot of that with Franya, where, you know, Celine again goes, it's like, oh, God, I need a drink. And we're like, nah, no. And she's like, no, I do. It's like, no, you're nah. not. Yeah, and then You the, might, but you're not going to. And then the joke of Celine not having any idea what she just got herself into is like we kind of play that up. And so, yeah, I think it, I think it worked. Way better this way. Oh, for sure, for yeah. sure. Oh yeah. yeah. Also because now we're getting down to the wire. There are a bit more higher stakes now because we are getting closer to Anthonopolis, and even if our characters don't know it explicitly, they can. We're kind of getting the idea that shit's about to get real. Yeah. So actually, a question I had for you guys, and maybe you don't have many thoughts on it, but learning the history of Anthonopolis, like, what are your guys's thoughts on like? the the lore that was that I created. <laughs> I really like it as far as like um when it comes to like big overarching things in history, I think all of that like sounds very on point mm-hmm. with with the story as a whole um where you have a big jerk that <laughs> you know did a whole bunch of really horrible things and there were consequences for it. Uh-huh. And it, it makes sense with the whole story and stuff like that. Um, it paints that guy as a bad person. Yeah. And it also kind of explains some of the misunderstandings that have happened over the years as far as the initial sort of prejudice that we introduced and kind of how certain, like, mindsets didn't quite change. Like, tieflings are not really looked at, at with high praise mm-hmm. in in District 1, and when you like go back into the history, you realize that tieflings not really had a high praise in Anthonopolis, but they were seen as like kind of a token. It's like, oh yeah. look, we did something. They were cool. a good omen. Yeah, it's like some some sort of achievement. Yeah. So the people of you know that did not have good standing, like you know the slave class, basically. Um, could see tieflings who were taking advantage of the fact that they were slightly higher. Yeah. Were like, you know, it's like, oh, they're a problem. You know, and that has actually some real world parallels. If you go back into like 1900s and uh, I think the example that gets used a lot is like New York mm-hmm. where you had um, like the slums of Italians and the Irish, um, the Irish Polish um, immigrants that came to, you know, the came to the Americas. And then you had people of color and how the upper class people were able to get the lower class people to fight each other mm-hmm. because the Irish and the Polish and anybody who had lighter skin were granted like, it's like, oh, no, no, you're white. You're one of us. You just yeah. need to grow up the ladder and you'll be great. You know, it's just they're not like us. You know, right. it kind of so it kind of got that like that set that so that sort of thing has happened in history. So for me to have like to see parallels of that in a you know it's a, a nice, fantasy, it's culture. a nice parallel without being overt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all of that made sense within the story and how those have ripple effects over time and how somebody who is still technically different can still be looked at with suspicion 
you know, without it going back to specifically, it's like, oh, they're they're evil or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's just like, no, this had like class, it like this was class based for the most part. Yeah. Um, also institutionalized and institutionalized, like you so know, so it's not inherent; it's institutional. Yeah. And then you do have the few crazies who are just like, oh no, they're evil. Yeah. I and do. I do like that we get a taste of what the, what the history is in the world. Uh, during this season, because it's not something that necessarily Talia or Celine really care about. Yeah, that's <laughs> so another this thing. Was, this was a nice way of being able to explore it without it being like something that we had to take interest in on a character level. Yeah, because like uh, part of the problem with running characters consistently is that you know something that you as a player are not ne- are, are like really interested in is not necessarily what your character is interested in. Yeah. And I think I've brought that up to you on some levels of like, oh, yeah, Talia would not care about this at all, but I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. So, like, I'm really interested in, like, the character or the the, the history of the world and that sort of thing. Um, and, and tying it all into, like, greater narratives. Talia could not give two shits about that sort of thing. She's more focused on, like, the immediate past that she can remember. Right, yeah. And how that is important to her. And... And to some extent, the future. Celine gives two shits about all of that and wants the future. It's like as more looking. She's towards more the inclined present. towards the future, the future and the present. So it's like, you know. Yeah. So you don't have characters that are actively l- looking through history, mm-hmm. whereas you know, go over to the Strahd game and you got two people that are like, "Excuse me, I need to know every minute detail of every single piece of history <laughs> on the planet, well, and I need academics. it tomorrow." Because they're academics. Yeah, and, they're academics. Yeah. And <laughs> Celine and Talia are definitely not <laughs> academics. No, they are not. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Fey Wild West, presented by Let's Be Legendary Podcast. If you're enjoying our story, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review or send a tweet about today's episode. Every little bit helps. Speaking of social media, you can find the links to all of ours at letsbelegendarypodcast.com or in the show notes. If you're into community, we've built a pretty awesome one on Discord. You can find the links to that too in the show notes or on our website. If you want to go a step further, consider supporting us on Patreon. All episodes get posted there early, as well as extra series to follow, like Bonus Round and The Shadow Over Ravenloft. Links are also in the show notes and website. Talia Argent Gray is played by Chris Sass Council. Celine Argent Gray is played by Megzi Sass Council. The Queen of Night and Magic is Jess Richards. And our Dungeon Master is Molly Hexcroft. Audio producer and writer is Molly Hexcroft, pronoun she, her. Lead writer, editor, and audio producer is Jess Richards, pronouns they, them. Art director, assistant audio mixer, social media and community management is Megzi Sass Council, pronoun she, her, and executive producer, creative director, audio mixer, social media and community manager is Chris Sass Council, pronouns they, them. Credits for music and sound effects can be found in the show notes. Celine's Tarot Deck is the Marigold Deck by Amrit Esperar, and the tarot guide used in game can be found at biddytarot.com. Thanks again for listening, and stay legendary.